This podcast is brought to you by Primary Intelligence, the leader in win-loss analysis, focused on helping businesses uncover the unique story on how each sales rep can win more deals. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another riveting edition of Sales Intelligence Weekly by Primary Intelligence. I'm Ryan Queller. We've seen a shift that many sales teams have experienced as a result of the 2020 pandemic, virtual settings. Sales teams have adjusted and learned to function in a work from home environment. And we're seeing this in organizations of every size and shape. Sales leaders have adapted, found better ways to communicate, better ways to coach and receive coaching and are continually on the hunt for better ways to create trust and camaraderie within their teams and with their customers, despite these interactions happening online and virtually. This is new territory for a lot of sales folks, leaders, and reps. This shift to a virtual sales environment can be hard to navigate. So the question that we're going to be chewing on today is how, how you as a sales leader, how can you break through these barriers and build trust on a virtual team that empowers your reps to win more? Here to explore this with me today is Wall Street Journal bestselling author and professor at Vanderbilt University, Patrick Ledden. Patrick, thanks for joining the show today. Oh, Ryan, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. That's awesome. So I've been, I'm a, I'm a fanboy, right? I've been following you for some years now and love, love your posts on LinkedIn. Super helpful for anybody that's a leader. You need to be listening to Patrick's podcast. Um, also, you had another kind of major life event just happen. Uh, tell us about your book. Right. So I had a book come out August 24th of this year. HarperCollins Leadership put it out. And it's called the Five Week Leadership Challenge. And I'm glad to say it hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, which means it sold a lot of copies pretty quick, which is good. So uh, Wall Street Journal should have a Ron Burgundy list and, you know, kind of a big deal. So we, we you know, you would hit that. I mean, hitting that is, is a, I mean, how does that feel being a, a Wall Street Journal bestseller? What's that feel like? It feels good. But in all honesty, and I know this sounds like, oh, this is what he would say. It wasn't just me. Right. So I had, I had a, a couple of people, my wife and uh, a couple of people I work with who got up every day all summer long and went to bed at night all summer long saying, how are we going to sell a $25 book tomorrow? And uh, people listening to this podcast understand that when you're trying to make a number and you have a really clear goal, um, that's one thing. When you actually hit it, that's even better. You know, it, it's true. We, we do stand on the shoulders of people behind us and also currently, you know, they, they lift us and any successful person I know has that team around them. So good for you. That's awesome. Okay. Tell us more about you. Tell us more about uh, your organization, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, I'd be remiss if I don't start off by saying that the same day the book came out, which was August 24th of this year was also my 30th wedding anniversary. So uh -oh. I've wow, been married awesome. for three decades now and uh, to my wife, Jamie, and she's been a great partner uh, for me. I think she's made me a better version of myself for sure. Over the last 30 years, she she and I both are professors at a university called Vanderbilt University here in, in Nashville, Tennessee. We're fortunate enough to teach uh, business classes. She and I also um, owned a business for about 12 years that we sold back in 2012. So we started it in the room above our garage and built it to a, a few different offices in a few different states, which was a fun ride. And uh, she, she and I started dating in college and she joined the, she didn't join the army, but she went to the army with me. I joined the army and she came along for the ride, I guess and encouraged me through, uh, through that experience as well. So we've been, we've been together a long time. Um, my career, I started in the Army, as I mentioned. I was very fortunate early on to go to some pretty challenging Army leadership schools, which kind of shaped the way I see the world 
Uh, I went to infantry officer school. I went to ranger school. I'd actually enlisted before that. So I went to basic training and advanced training, went to airborne school, went to jump master school, was a company commander and a platoon leader in the 82nd airborne division. So those jobs early on kind of shaped how I saw the world and uh, the importance of kind of stepping up and leading. Then I went to a firm called KPMG Consulting, did that for a few years, had a quick kind of interesting turn of fate. I left KPMG back around 2001 and went to work at a company called Franklin Covey. And the people at Franklin Covey have been long-term friends of mine, even though about six months, months into my time at Franklin Covey, uh, my wife and I were working a side project on our own that blossomed into a business. And I went back to my friends at Franklin Covey and I said, I know I only joined six months ago, but I've got this side hustle going on that's growing. And they were kind enough to say, how about we be another client of yours? So for the next 12 years, Franklin Covey was a client of mine, I, as well as other businesses. And then we sold our business in 2012. I went back to Franklin Covey as a full-time employee, ran strategic partnerships for a few years. And then from there, I pivoted and went full-time at the university. So I've been at Vanderbilt teaching for the last six, seven years now. Okay. So you've been around the block. I, you know, you've done lots of different things and I'm not going to ask you some dumb question, like, you know, what was your favorite stop along the way? But I want to know from, from your perspective, what was the most impactful out of, I mean, you've done a lot of really interesting, very cool life shaping things. What's been some of the most impactful key learnings for you? Well, I think one thing that you mentioned earlier, when we were talking about the book is that life is a team sport. And the importance of kind of surrounding yourself with quality people is really a, a key thing because I do think we kind of rise and fall to those around us. So I mentioned my wife early on. And I think she's uh, encouraged me to see what I can do and other people have as well. So I think it's really critical to surround yourself with some, some people who are better than you and it cause you to aspire to be better. I think on the other side of the thing, when you get away from the aspirational stuff, I think very much blocking and tackling matters, getting up and doing the little things every day kind of matters. And a lot of people won't do it. I, I look around, I always joking, jokingly say to myself, so that's kind of what's going on. I'm joking with myself. That's pretty, tells you about my personality. But when I'm on an airplane, or I used to travel a lot on airplanes. I'd look around and I'd say, okay, airplanes have confirmed for me that adults like to play games and take naps because <laughs> that's okay, what's going on all around me. And I'm going to yes, be the yes. one guy who's like plugging away on my computer and see if I can't gain a little ground on the rest of the world in this moment. So there's a little bit of just kind of getting up and doing the, the regular stuff. I, I have a pretty decent following on LinkedIn for what I still pay full price at Starbucks for my coffee. So I'm not getting any discounts <laughs> out there, but, but I have about 103,000 people who read my posts regularly on LinkedIn. And somebody be like, well, how'd you get 103,000 people? I said, well, write an article a week for five years. And guess what'll happen? Yeah. And I'm sure people listening to this podcast who do sales work know that it's the little stuff repeatedly, consistently doing things that will deliver the goods. Okay. Powerful. Um, all right. Let's hop into this. You're the yeah. right guy to have this conversation about uh, leadership and creating trust in uh, a virtual setting. So let's, let's do this. So clearly pandemic changed the world, right? And it's changed sales. It's changed how we do business. It's changed everything. You've talked about vision, shaping our vision. This has shaped and will continue to shape. How have you seen the shift to a virtual environment, right? This virtual um, work environment affect leaders and how they function? Well, I think one thing, and this might sound a little bit negative, but I think it's true. A lot of people who are in sales functions, they'll refer to themselves as a leader of a sales team, but there's no team. And what I mean by that is that 
uh, in my mind, at least, a team is the lowest level of interdependence necessary to win on a goal. And if everybody has their own individual things going on, their own numbers they're trying to deliver on, and it's kind of the heck with everybody else type of mentality, you got to step back from that and just say, do we even have a team? Mm. Or is it a matter of we're a team simply because we're all doing the same type of roles and yeah, we get together occasionally and all report out our numbers. That's really not a team. So I think, first of all, you have to realize that you have to create a sense of team by creating a sense of shared goals. It doesn't mean people can't have their own revenue numbers or their own territory they're going after. It just means if you really want to leverage the strength of a team, people need to figure out how together we're better than we are separate. Now, when you add the level of virtual to it, it makes it a little bit even more complicated because I, I, I was talking to um, Stephen M. R. Covey, who wrote a book called The Speed of Trust, and he was kind enough to write the, the um, opening for my book that came out. And he and I had this conversation about trust, and Stephen talks about these waves of trust and how trust happens at different levels, the self-trust and interpersonal trust and team trust and kind of industry trust and then ultimately um, societal trust. And he talks about these different things. He also talks about these key behaviors of trust. There's 13 of them. When I finished the conversation with Stephen, I was reflecting on, okay, what is, how does this apply in a virtual world? And I came up with a few things that I think might be of interest to your listeners about how do you actually build real trust in a virtual environment? Yes. So, so the first one is that, you know, the virtual work environment is not an excuse. If I'm leading a team, I can't just say, well, all our meetings are on Zoom now. And boy, when we used to be together in person, it was a lot different. Or we used to handle accountability differently, but now it's so hard because we're going through the pandemic or whatever it might be. I mean, that's not an excuse. It's, it's explanation for certain things, but we can't use it as a crutch for why we're not delivering on something. So the first thing is kind of a mindset thing that says whether our team is virtual or not, we can't afford to have a low trust environment. I just figure out, need to figure out how to make it happen. And if that means as a leader, you're the type of person who has to think like it's a game, like I have to figure out as a game, how to get my people to feel more connected to each other and trust one another, then play the game. If you're a person who says, you know what, hell or high water, I'm going to make it happen, then guess what? Make it happen. But the bottom line is it's not an excuse for low trust. So that's a, the first thing, which really happens between your two ears. So that that's okay. I, I need to unpack this a little bit. Yeah, this, I think this is like a foundation, foundational piece here. What, what is actually driving low trust? And, and again, I'm going to say in a virtual setting, and, and I heard you loud and clear, that's not an excuse. It's just a new environment. Deal with it. But you know, in this, in our new reality, what's driving low trust? Why, why is there low trust? Well, I think one reason there's low trust is because we don't feel that level of interdependence I talked about earlier. So what starts to happen, and maybe you've seen this, Ryan, is that people who work virtually, and I've worked virtually for 20 years. I mean, yeah. I've been working virtually, and many of your listeners have worked virtually for a long time too. But what tends to happen is if you don't feel like you're part of a team or something bigger than yourself, then what starts, you become a very good at completing tasks. Now, I'll, I'm first to admit, I love my task list. I love my to-do list. I love to write stuff on my to-do list. I love to check stuff off my to-do list. There's this little endorphin that fires off in my brain. I've got the psychological disorder that if something's not on my to-do list and I do it, I add it to my to-do list so I can check it off. So I get all of that. But what, what we don't want to have happen is people get up and they start their work day at eight o'clock and it becomes a race through my checklist. How quickly do I finish all the things on my to-do list so then I can go do everything else that I want to do in life? And that's one thing that can kind of happen in a virtual environment when we feel like we're all independent players just trying to rattle our way through our to-do list. And I think situations like that cause trust to start to erode. 
Um, people don't see that oh, there's nobody to go by and talk to and ask, hey, I'm going to go talk to this client. What should I do? Because that person's done with their list and they're on with their life. Another thing is that uh, by nature, sometimes in, in, in certain types of roles, uh, we feel hyper competitive with each other. And sales can kind of become a hyper competitive environment. And when, when, hype, when being hyper competitive isn't checked at some degree, um, what can happen is people start to learn to not trust one another. So that hyper competitiveness sometimes when the only time we get together to talk as a team is to look at the results and the scoreboard and compare our numbers, as opposed to get together, to do other things that actually suggest we're building a team here. Those type of things can start to cause people to not really trust one another or not be willing to reach out to another one another. So there are certain things we can do. Missing commitments will be another one. Um, as a leader of a team, if I am having a check-in meeting with my entire team and we start reporting out on what we're doing and my peers clearly hear that I'm not being held accountable for something I'm not doing, that lowers the trust in the leader as well. So there's a lot of different things that can happen in the environment. Okay. So um, what do we do? How do we replace as a leader, how do we rip and replace this idea? Maybe it's not a matter of rip and replace, but how do we change or address the checklist mentality that, that you just mentioned? What do we do different? Well, it, it kind of my second point of the whole thing is it starts with you. So once you get your mindset on this, that okay, virtual environment's not an excuse. The second thing is, okay, I don't need to look out there and expect my team to fix things. I've got to step up and fix things myself. So that means that I need to figure out ways to gain trust with my teammates. I got to be a little bit vulnerable at times because by showing a little bit of vulnerability, maybe I don't know how to solve all these things. It causes people to pitch in and try to figure those things out as well. But I have to realize that my behavior really does matter as a leader. And I have to think through, okay, how am I going to approach the next meeting, the next interaction, the next setting with my team to start to build the trust and recognize for them to recognize that I'm a trustworthy person. Okay my behavior matters as a leader. Okay. So let, let's go there. Um, mm -hmm. as a leader, how can you identify, how can you tell what are the, the yellow lights, the, the, the slowdowns, the watches, the watch house, the gotchas, if your leadership in a virtual environment is subpar, how do you measure yourself in that regard? Well, I think one thing you need to consider is when's the last time you had a one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one conversation with your people. Mm. That's a pretty critical thing to do as a leader. We kind of get away with it sometimes in organizations when we're all in the same building because we can walk by somebody in the hallway and say, how's it going? What was the weather like this weekend? What'd you do this week? You know, those type of things that aren't really good leadership conversations, but at least we're kind of checking in a little bit. But virtually, oh, you got to make an appointment. You got to go see them. You've got to, you've got to, it's not just going to happen um, naturally. I've got to make this thing happen. So I think one is you have to have one-on-ones with your people and specifically it's one thing for me to say, I need to have one-on-one -on -one check-ins with your people. And somebody goes, okay, I got them. I have one-on-ones. I'll schedule them all. Okay. What do I do? How do I have them? Well, right. Yes. yes and I have to recognize yes. that it's, it's, it's a, it's kind of a three-step dance, a good one-on-one. -on -one. It starts with good prep work on your end and on their end. Hey, we're going to get together. We're going to talk about this type of thing. And sometimes it's developmental type of things. We're going to have a developmental conversation. We're not going to talk about performance right now. We're going to talk about kind of where you're at in your career and where you're going type of discussion. I want you to prepare for that conversation. There's other times where it might be a conversation about current performance or helping to think around a particular client or just check in and see how they're doing. But I need to like set that up. So if you and I were going to have a conversation, it was a one-on-one -on -one conversation, Ryan, you were my boss. If you send me a note and say, hey, can you talk in 30 minutes? And I'm thinking, what are we going to talk about? What's going on? I haven't even thought about this. And then we, we hit the conversation and we open up Zoom or whatever we're talking on. And you start with this deep, 
Patrick, what do you want to do with your career? And I'm like, I didn't even know that's what we we're going to talk about right now. So you've got to like prepare me for that and let me know what we're going to have and let me do some legwork before I step into the room and then actually be present when we're talking because it's really easy. It's easy enough to be distracted when you're, um, you know, in a meeting somewhere and you've got your phone by you, but how about if you have your kids and you're about to run an errand to pick somebody up somewhere in the next 10 minutes and the phone's ringing in the other room and the dog's barking and all those other things, it's really hard to be present. So I've really got to make sure I'm present for you, which means it might mean that I don't book them back to back to back type of thing. I give myself the space. And then lastly, the follow-up piece, you know, if, if you're my boss, Ryan, maybe there's something you commit to do to help me out. And then I got to get it done. You've got to get it done. I also think that one thing that challenges us sometimes when it comes to trust, and, and you tell me this, if this is true or not, in the absence of reasoning or explanation for things, do people tend to fill in the blanks themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They do. And do they tend to fill them in with the positive stuff? Like, Hey, they're not talking to us right now because we're about to get a big raise. Or do they fill them with the negative stuff? No, come on, man. We are built. We are built to catastrophize all things. Come on. Exactly. So yeah. there you go. So what happens a lot is if we're not in the same spot together and I don't know what's going on and you're not communicating that well with me, or you maybe just not enough beating my needs, I start to fill in the blanks with all sorts of bad things. So next thing I know, my resume is everywhere and I'm out there looking for other gigs and other things, right? So it kind of comes down to that idea that when it comes to behavior matters as a leader, especially when you're working remotely, is you have to communicate and then communicate again and then communicate again. Even if it feels like you're doing it at nauseum, do it one more time because people just aren't hearing it right now. There's just so much noise in the system. When you think about uh, the old models of communication, sender, receiver, message type of thing. So you have sender sending message to receiver. That message is going through some type of channel and there's always noise in the system. That's like the old model of basic model of communication. Well, think about the noise that's in the system right now and the opportunities for you know, lost interpretation and things like that. I think also when it comes to, we just kind of go through a litany of things when it comes to behavior, just for people to consider as you're listening is another one is that organizations are, are ripe with change, right? There's always change going on internally, externally. There's all these changes going on in organizations. And you get back to that idea about people filling in the blanks. So there's this natural curve that happens when you think about change management. So if your people are thinking like, okay, first step is we're in the status quo. We're just kind of doing the normal thing. Then some change happens and usually our performance drops. Like we got a new CRM or we have a new product we're bringing to the market or something's taking our eye off the, the ball. Our performance drops. And then at some point we start to catch on with it and start using the new technology or whatever. And that performance goes up. And then lo and behold, if it all goes splendidly, we'll be at a whole nother level of performance. We've never envisioned before, before this change come, came along. And then we all sit back and go, I don't like change, but gosh, it makes us better because we went through change. Well, one of the steps that happens early on in that process is you go from status quo, whatever that is, to this change moment where performance starts to dip because things start to change. The reality is leaders go to meetings with other leaders and they hear about the changes that are coming down the road. Salespeople, employees, frontline people, they're not at those meetings. So they don't have the five or six or seven or 10 meetings about that subject that you've had for 10 weeks in a row. They're just doing their thing. And then one day you walk out of the office or jump on a Zoom call and say, by the way, I've got so-and-so from marketing here today, and we're going to do this going forward. 
And everybody's thinking, how does that impact me? What am I going to do? Is that going to hurt my revenue? Is my income going to go down? I got to make a mortgage payment. Hey, inflation's going up. Am I even going to be able to cover my bills? They're thinking about all those things. And you're already thinking about how it's such a splendid idea. So you're halfway through this curve and they're at the beginning going, I don't even want to get in the water with you. So you have to think about how's that going to play out? How's the change going to play out, for example? And what do you need to do in a virtual world to prepare people for that? Yeah. I, I used to struggle so much with this one, Ryan, myself, when I was a, le- a leader, even the team that we had, I, I have this min- mindset that once I, I decide this is the right thing to do or whatever, I'm off and running, I'm ready to go. And some, I'm not saying like I just go to the top of a mountain and think about what's the next best thing to do. And I come down and pronounce it to the world. We all could have been involved in conversations or whatever. But at some point, I'm like, yep, this is what we're going to do. And, and I, I remember there were plenty of times I would jump in the water and start swimming because that's what we're going to do. And I look over my shoulder and everybody's still standing on the dock looking at me going, why is this idiot in the water right now? So it, again, behavior matters, slow down, explain your intentions, explain what's going on, answer questions, do it two or three times, bring it up again, help people come along in the process with you. And then I'll add one more thing around behavior matters to think about. Um, And I guess, I guess the hope would be in each of these situations, you think about, okay, what do you normally do? And then how's that working for you? (laughs) And then what do you normally do in this new environment? And how's that working for you? You're going to have to try a little harder. Another one is how do you engage people and involve them in things? You know, what, when, if you've been virtual for a while, have you been brainstorming? If so, what tools are you using to help make that brainstorming actually work where people can visually see things? What are you doing? How are you engaging people? Um, there's an expression that people use a lot of times, which say, I need to get my people's buy-in. Yeah, I hear I, that all the time. We hear that all the time. I hate it. I hate that expression personally, (laughs) because what what I hear buy-in, what I oftentimes, and I'm not saying every time, I'm not saying everybody who listens to this isn't, isn't, you know, saying buy-in and they don't mean it this way, but I've heard enough people say buy-in and basically mean don't rebel. That's what they're saying. I need to tell you something and I just need you to buy into this enough where you don't rebel or quit on me. Right. Or ask any hard questions that I can't answer. Exactly. So buy-in is like the lowest bar in my mind. I just got to get over this short little hurdle called buy-in. I'm like, what about involvement? What about engagement? What about creativity? What about all these other steps? But sometimes those steps don't come easy, especially if trust has been damaged in a relationship. You're in the meeting. Finally, okay, this time I'm the boss, right? Finally, Patrick is holding a meeting and he really wants to collaborate with us, but he's been so non-collaborative for so long and so difficult for so long. And our trust is eroded with him. Now he's going to do it. Everybody's sitting when I say, well, what do you guys think we should do? You're all sitting there thinking, what does Patrick want us to say we should do? We'll just say that so we don't get in trouble, right? So you can't turn that ship around really quick sometimes. It takes a little while. Yeah, and I think what what you're talking about is is the key to actually producing a result, regardless of the environment, regardless if you're in person or virtual, like you were saying. Virtual is just an, an adopt and overcome situation. It's just, it's just different. It's not better or worse. It's just different. And if we're going to get those types of results and help salespeople, help leadership deal with salespeople, deal with their own stuff, um, I think we have to see people differently. As a leader, how, how, do, you, how do you change? I mean, it starts with that, that vision, right? How you see the paradigm that we use to look at people. How do I start to change my, my, my own paradigm around, I'm not the one that's most important. I'm not the, me jumping into the water, like you said, isn't the most important thing. It's having everybody jump in the pool, jump in the water, 
how do I change my paradigm? Well, in the, in the book, the five week leadership challenge book, the first week is all about mindset about how do I look at things? And I, the book, it is full of stories. So leadership stories, some are mine, some are other people's stories that I've had a chance or opportunity to watch them kind of do certain things. So in that first week, I walk you through 10 different mindsets that I think are really critical to consider. So there's one around, uh, I'll just give you an example. So the first one is called um, clarify focus. And the idea in the first mindset is where you put your best energy as opposed to all the things that can distract our attention. I tell a story about when I was in the military, when I went to airborne school and for folks who may or may not be familiar with airborne school, but that's where you learn how to jump out of airplanes in the army. And um, it consists of three weeks of training. So basically the first week of training is called ground week, which means they keep you pretty close to the ground. They push you over or knock you down and you learn how to fall. And then they take you up. The next week's called tower week, which means they take you higher off the ground and teach you how to fall. Like, do and they then, push you off a tower? Is that what they're doing? Uh, well, no, they have these different things. They have, they do have a tower. I don't know if it's operational anymore, but they have a 250 foot tower that there's like this ring that a parachute is open in the ring and then they release it. So it's already open and you glide down to the ground, but they teach you how to fall. Uh, and then the, the last week is called jump week, which means you jump out of planes and learn how to fall. So it's a lot of falling down. Gravity is like kicking butt there. It's um, so, so jump week, in order to get through jump week and to graduate, you have to get five jumps, five parachute jumps. Four are considered daylight jumps. And the fifth one is considered a nighttime jump. I can tell you it's not a nighttime jump. I mean, it's technically nighttime or dusk or something, but you can pretty much see. Okay. So I remember when I showed up at the 82nd Airborne Division and I showed up for my first unit and they said, okay, we're going on a nighttime jump on Tuesday or whatever it was. I thought to myself, no big deal. I've done a nighttime jump before. And uh, guess what? I hadn't done a nighttime jump before. I'd done a dusk time jump before. <laughs> not the same. Not, thing. Not no, the same. You know, I've done a dusk time jump where one by one, you slowly go out of the airplane to make sure everybody's safe because you're in training. A nighttime jump I learned happens at like two o'clock in the morning. And there's 22 airplanes all unloading 1,500 paratroopers in two minutes, literally not two minutes, 1,500 people in the air. Yeah. And I remember when I got on that plane that night, we were just packed in like sardines and you have all this equipment. And then you stand up, it's dark in there. And all the soldiers are so ex like, they're excited. They're like fired up. Their adrenaline's pumping and they're screaming and yelling. And, you're, and I'm thinking, what have I gotten myself into? And, the, and, and they get out of the airplane. And I just, I didn't want to get out of the airplane too at that point. You get out of the airplane I do the things you're supposed to do. You count to 4,000 and you look up and you have a parachute. That's good. Those are helpful. And then I looked around and I saw that I wasn't close to any other paratroopers. I wasn't going to crash into them. That's a good thing too. So I'm working my way through the routine they teach us. And then I looked down below me, Ryan. And if you imagine like people listening to this, that they look down below them, right below my feet, it's pitch black down there. And then off to one of my sides, it's light brown. Now I'd only been around the airborne block a couple of times, but I knew the light brown area down there, that lighter color area, that's where we wanted to go. That was the soft drop zone. The area below me was the dark trees of Fort Stewart, Georgia, big pine trees. And the challenge was I couldn't get to the light stuff. I was only going to the dark stuff. There was no way to control that. So instead of like saying, how am I gonna reconfigure this parachute so that somehow I can defy physics and get over to that light stuff area, I start saying, how do I survive crashing into these trees? What have I been taught to do? So the idea here is to think about in this first mindset area is to think about what are the trees in your life, the obstacles, the things that get in your way? 
that we sometimes use as a crutch or an explanation for our excuse for messing things up or a distraction from focusing on the real things. What are those trees in our, in our, in our life and how do we either remove them or learn how to deal with them? By the way, in my situation, I crashed into the trees and it was like, boom, boom, boom. I hit the trees and then I was just hanging there. Now, like I said, it's two o'clock in the morning. It is pitch dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what do I do now? I remembered that they taught me that if you are hanging in a tree and you want to climb down from the tree, what you can do is you can release your reserve parachute, which is on your front. So you pull the reserve parachute and then you put the suspension lines all the way out. So you get it as long as you can. And then I guess the hope is that it's on the ground at that point. And then you climb out of your harness and climb down the reserve parachute. So that was my option at that point. And I was thinking to myself, you know, do I want to do that? I can hear there's other people in the trees around me. And then I remembered as a young lieutenant, I thought, I don't want it to be six o'clock in the morning when the sun comes up and I'm the one joker still hanging in the trees. <laughs> I'm like, if I'm that person, then I'm not going to live that down for at least six months to a year. So I decided I'm going to get down out of the trees. And my first inclination was to say, well, before I release myself out of this harness, how secure am I in this harness with my thought, right? So you can see me on screen here. I reach up on my risers, which are right here, just to pull on them and see how high I am. And it literally is this. I was this far off the ground the entire time. <laughs> and for those of the listeners, his hands are about five inches apart. Yeah, yeah. So he's only five inches off the ground. <laughs> I just couldn't see it. So I guess that's the other side of the, the explanation in my mind. It's like, you know what? Sometimes you're going to land in the trees, but you never know. You can land around your feet too. So you... So the first one, the first mindset is around this idea of focusing on where you can have the impact. I can't control whether or not I'm going to go into trees, but I can control how I handle that. Right. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I go into other mindsets about, you know, checking your ego and that you have to engage other people and you have to rethink failure. So these are some different things as a leader that it requires you to do differently than you were doing when you were an individual contributor. So I, I love this idea. Um, frankly, can't wait to read your book. Um, I'm buying one today. I'm going to go check it out. Um, so I, I want to have a twist here. We've been talking about leadership and about internal, right? So I'm a sales leader or I'm a leader and I'm working with my employee. How does this translate over to building trust with, between a sales rep and potentially a prospect? Is there anything different or is it the same or same behaviors? Well, I think in general, it's, it's a lot of the same behaviors. I mean, let's be realistic. What does transparency look like inside your organization is probably a little differently than it looks like to your client. Sometimes, you know, you have some things that you can share and some things you can't share. So I'm not saying that it's exactly the same thing. What I am saying though, is that the underlying principles are the same. Mm -hmm. So if I'm thinking about interacting with my customers in this virtual environment, okay, virtual environment's not an excuse to not deliver with excellence to my clients, right? It's not an excuse. I just, it, it is an obstacle. I just had to need to figure out how to do with it. Virtual experience underneath that or dealing with clients in general, behavior still matters. How I interact with and treat them still matters. Do I deliver on the things I say I'm going to do? Okay. Uh, I think when you get down to some of the details, uh, it might play out a little differently. For example, if I'm leading people on my team, it's important for me to ask the question, whose agenda am I on right now? Am I on my agenda? I want to look good and do it on their backs. Or am I on their agenda saying, you know what, I want to look good, sure, but I want to help them become great because if I help them become greater versions of themselves, we're all going to win. And the same thing can happen with my clients, right? Whose agenda am I on when I go talk to my client? Am I on the agenda that says, eh, it's almost the end of the quarter and I got to deliver on my number. So I think this guy's got money and I'm going to get it out of him. 
Yeah. Or am I coming in saying, I'm really going to listen to what they need and, and give them what they're, what they really need to be successful. I did have an expression that I used to use a lot with my teammates, and this might resonate with, uh, with your folks. I used to tell my young consultants. So when we had a company, my wife and I did, we had consultants that worked for us, project work. And um, some were our employees, some were contractors, some were fairly young, like just out of school a few years. And I would say to them when they were learning how to interact with their clients, I would say, give the client what they ask for and earn the right to give them what they need. And what I meant by that was, so give them what they ask for, earn the right to give them what they need. Until you have a degree of trust with them, where they feel like, okay, you have a degree of expertise, that you're competent in your role, you know your stuff, you care about us, you're not just trying to push things on us. Until you get to that level and build a little bit of rapport with them, it's hard for you to jump to the point and say, okay, let me, I know you're asking for this, but let me tell you what you really need. Because if you do that, they tend to think that you're on your agenda, not their agenda. So what I would tell them is you got to put your toe in the, we're in the water all the time here. I tell them you got to put your toe That's in the water. water a little bit. Yeah, a lot of water in this particular conversation, but you got to put your toe in the water a little bit, maybe give them what they need. And in doing it, they realize, okay, Patrick can deliver for me. I'm going to listen a little bit more to him as we go forward. Now, I'm not saying if they tell you they need something and you know it's the absolute wrong decision. And if they do it, it could destroy their career. I'm not talking about that. For the most part, it's degrees of difference. But if they say they, they want something, they've, and I'm sure people listening to this have deal with a lot of clients that have already self-diagnosed and they know what they need and they don't want you to do anything other than fill orders for them. Oh, that never right. happens. What are you yeah, talking right? about? Yeah. So in those situations, sometimes, you know what, you fill the order a little bit, you give them what they ask for, you show you can deliver, you're not hurting them, you show them they can deliver and you're responsible and you're a good competent partner. And then the next time you talk to them, you say, let's peel this back a little bit. I understand you want more of X. It seems to be working for you but let's talk a little bit about what's the underpinning thing that you're trying to address and let's build rapport from there. Or let's build a solution from there. So my point being is that I think what you asked me is, you know, is it different with customers? I don't think the underlying principles are different. You work off their agenda, not your agenda. It's not all about you. If you mess something up, you talk to them about it. You're as transparent as you can be. All of those type of things. It's just how you go about it is different because the relationship is different. So Patrick, uh, this has been uh, jam-packed, but with just fantastic information. That story, I, I can I can see you hanging in the tree. You know, well, then and, you, you definitely need to buy the book because it's 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 forty stories like that. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, love that. Um, you know, yes, will do, and I will re- return and report uh, as to what I've learned from yeah, that. Please do. Yeah, yeah. Again, congratulations. The thing that I think that was most impressive, though, out of everything that you shared, was the thirty years of marriage. Um, that that's, that's not a small feat. That is a big deal. Congratulations to both you and your wife. Um, that that's a big deal. So congratulations. Well, can I give a little marital advice? Uh, you know, I, you know, I need it. I'm 23 years in, I'm seven oh, years dude, behind you, yeah, you're, but, uh, yeah, you, yeah, you, please in do. 23 years. You figured this one out. Never I don't know. Stop, maybe never yeah, stop know. working on it, man. It doesn't, it, there's never any place where you just put it in neutral. Cause if you do for too long and you take your eyes off the relationship, you'll pay a price. And I, I tell a story in there. In the book where I did just that, uh, long or the short of it is that I tell a story that my wife and I were constantly going in two different directions all the time for work and this and that and the other thing. And I tend to put more on my plate than I need to sometimes. And there was this moment where I was coming back to Louisville, which is where we were living at the time, Louisville, Kentucky. And I was, I was traveling, coming in. I had a plane that I missed. And then I caught a later flight in the afternoon. We were going to go to an event together, a business event together. And I called her up and I was basically like, 
hey, um, I missed that flight because of this, that, and the other, plenty of good reasons. And uh, I'll just meet you at the event, par for the course, right? I didn't show up and pick her up. I didn't, I just meet you at the place. And uh, we went to the event. She was a little cold. She wasn't too thrilled with me at the event. Driving home from the event, we're in two separate cars. I look down, I'm almost out of gas. How poetic. I pull into a gas station that has no overhead cover and it downpours on me. So now I'm caught soaking wet with no gas. So I'm caught double. I drive home, open up the garage door, and my wife is waiting for me in the garage. And she said, we need to have a talk. Loaded for bear. And it wasn't a good talk, man. It's yeah. a talk that you know people don't want to have in relationships, but it was a talk that needed to be had. Mm-hmm. It's also a talk that I could have avoided a thousand times over if I'd just done some different things. So the point is, 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 you know, don't get caught in the rain when you're running out of gas. Keep investing in relationships, whether it's your teammates, your clients, or your partners in life. And also, I guess the, one of the points is that the book isn't full of stories where it's like, I was going along and then I, then something happened and then I sprung to the ready and fixed the solution and we ended up in this great place. Sometimes it's like I was going along and then I did something and it got worse and then I did something else that got even worse from there. And then it just started going downhill from there. So you get the good, the bad, and the ugly in some of these stories. Can't wait to read them, my friend. Patrick, thank you so much for being on the show today. You've been a wonderful guest. Thanks for the time. My pleasure, Ryan. Take care. Sales leaders. You can empower your team even with this shift to a virtual environment. In fact, no excuses. Yes, you can. It's just another thing to to overcome. By building trust and deliberately developing the relationships with your teams virtually, you'll be able to create a better work environment to help your reps win more. And listeners, don't forget to check out primary-intel.com slash podcast where you'll be able to find free resources for sales and marketing leaders. Make sure to subscribe and tune in next time as we continue to explore topics on how to improve sales experiences, increase win rates, and elevate sales enablement. In the meantime, check us out at primary-intel.com to find out more on how you can tap into your buyer feedback to win more deals. And we'll see you next time.